Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 402 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab Training Part 2. Success in any crewed space mission is dependent upon the quality of the hardware, the skill of the ground support, and the ability of the flight crew to perform assigned functions in both planned and contingency situations. Since the beginning of the space program, flight crew training has been an integral part of all missions, but with Skylab's extended mission duration, added a new complexity to the training of both the flight crew and the mission control teams, as well as performing the ascent, rendezvous, docking, EVA, and recovery tasks common to many space flights. Skylab astronauts had far more scientific and housekeeping duties to perform as well. The nine primary and six backup astronauts underwent identical training, allowing for the replacement of either the complete crew or any individual with minimum delay should the need arise. The astronauts each completed approximately 2,150 hours training by the time of launch. Now this is equivalent to completing a four-year college degree course in just three years. And this was almost double that averaged on the Apollo lunar missions. In addition, there was also an unrecorded amount of time that included personal study, physical exercise, informal briefings, aircraft proficiency training, as well as crew and astronaut office meetings and briefings. From 1968 onward, the astronauts traveled more and more frequently to Huntsville's Marshall Space Flight Center for engineering tests and design reviews, but increasingly for EVA training in the new, larger, and more sophisticated water tank. EVA training followed this procedure. It began with a bench review and an unsuited run through the mock-ups 
and a platform or cherry picker to reach the EVA areas. Then, these suited exercises were performed both in 1G and in Marshall's Neutral Buoyancy Simulator, or the water tank. The tank was very helpful to evaluate full procedures. Now here's a little background information on the Neutral Buoyancy Simulator at Marshall. NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, presents Aeronautics and Space Report. This is not a television control room. It is, however, where astronauts training for upcoming Skylab missions are monitored as they practice going outside the Earth-orbiting space station to retrieve canisters of exposed film. The place is NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, Huntsville, Alabama. Located here is a 75-foot diameter tank filled to a depth of 40 feet with a million and a half gallons of water. It's called the Neutral Buoyancy Simulator. Placed inside the tank are full-size sections of the Skylab space station. So that it's free enough to, to snap in and not have this part come down and hit the rail. The workday begins at a briefing session before the astronauts go underwater. Many problems are discussed and worked out at this time. After donning their pressure suits, the astronauts prepare to dive. They are weighted with lead so that they neither sink nor float but remain neutrally buoyant in the water, simulating weightlessness. This is astronaut Paul Weitz. He, along with Pete Conrad and Dr. Joe Kerwin, will be the first crew to man the Skylab space station next year. Well, what we have to try to do is simulate the effects of weightlessness as best we can. On Earth, there are only two ways we can do it. That is by so-called neutral buoyancy, which is in a water tank such as the one we have here, or by flying the weightlessness, the freefall parabolas in an airplane. The advantage of the neutral buoyancy tank is that you can work for extended periods of time in an environment that does simulate fairly faithfully, as has been evaluated by the people who have flown, the effects of weightlessness. Skylab's three main objectives are one, medical, to find out how well man can adapt to long-term spaceflight. Two, to look at the sun above the Earth's distorting atmosphere and hopefully gain new knowledge about it for scientists. And three, look at the Earth itself. Earth resources, viewing everything from pollution to crop disease from a new perspective. Skylab underwater training, a valuable tool in preparing men for weightless space flight. The neutral buoyancy simulator was actually the third and by far the largest tank built for training. This tank was built primarily with the idea of using it for the Apollo applications program. Welding of the tank took place in October and November 1967 after which a 40 feet deep, 75 feet in diameter pool was nearly ready. Remaining work included installation of a two-ton hoist, 
a breathing air system, a scuba cylinder filling system, a new recompression chamber, the installation of the instrumentation in a trailer to be located between buildings 4706 and 4705, the procurement and installation of a diving bell and airlocks, and the design and procurement and installation of an elevator to operate between ground floor and the upper platform and to be used for the movement of both people and equipment. Final preparations for testing took several more months. Engineers elected to fill the tank slowly to be able to repair any leaks found along the way, and they filled it finding and fixing a few leaks between February 29th and March 11th, 1968. Thus readied, workers began installing test equipment. Workers had to develop new techniques to assemble parts underwater because of the low clearance between the top of the tank and the enclosing building's roof. With the prospect of astronauts diving in pressure suits, the Manned Spacecraft Center introduced a new level of safety to Marshall in the form of an Operational Readiness Inspection Committee, which evaluated the facility for safety concerns. The committee was formed in December of 1967. They carried out inspections and oversaw exercises to demonstrate the readiness for a variety of contingencies. After nearly a year of a full tank, the procedures were ready for suited astronauts. The first suited astronaut dive in the new tank was an exercise to develop Apollo telescope mount film retrieval techniques. Paul Weitz and Joseph Kerwin donned Apollo A5L suits. These were predecessors to the Apollo Skylab A7L suits. And they practiced film retrieval by both parallel rails and the trolley system, while Ed Gibson observed in scuba gear on March 4, 1969. Their experiences led to a tethered restraint system heat exchanger in the spacesuit air supply, adjusting the umbilical so that it was neutrally buoyant, tweaks to the weighting system for the A5L suit, and a new foot restraint design. With the addition of trailers for control and dressing rooms between buildings 4705 and 4706, the combination became referred to as just Building 4705. The neutral buoyancy training time varied by crew, with 48 hours for the first crew, 57 hours for the second, and 42 hours for the third. In general, the astronauts found Marshall's pool to be professionally run and a pleasant experience. Here is the procedure for a typical pool training exercise. The astronauts would suit up in the dressing room, brief the test, and then go poolside into quite a crowd with divers, suit technicians, mock-up engineers, and test personnel 
Then they would connect suit to communications, air, and cooling water. Next, they went down the steps into the water, then floated passively while the divers waded them out. That is W-E-I-G-H-T. To weight them out, the divers placed lead weights into various pockets to counteract the buoyancy of the airfield spacesuit until the astronauts were neither floating to the surface nor sinking to the bottom. Then, the two astronauts that were training, each accompanied by their own personal safety diver who was ready to assist them instantly in case they lost air or developed a leak, would move over to the Skylab mock-up. The mock-up was made up of full-size replicas of all four major elements of the cluster. The Apollo telescope mount, the workshop, the multiple docking adapter, and the airlock, all submerged in the tank. The astronauts would then practice film retrieval for the Apollo telescope mount, or sample recovery, or vacuum internal vehicular activity transfer using contingency activation of the multi-docking adapter or orbital workstation, and they could use the astronaut life support system assembly. During their practice, the astronauts evaluated opening mechanisms and locks, handrails and footholds, and managing the umbilicals which trailed out behind them as they practiced. Practice would typically end after two to three hours. Then the astronauts would return to the locker room and debrief. Using this methodology, before each crew launched, all astronauts could don and zip their own suits without assistance and move around in the suit in a comfortable fashion. The neutral buoyancy simulator was also invaluable in developing procedures for solar cell and sun shield deployment. Several other astronauts, particularly Gibson, spent countless hours in the tank developing EVA techniques over many years during the development of Skylab. I also want to mention the 30-second stints of zero-g from the parabolic flights of the KC-135, or Vomit Comet, that were used in training for eating, drinking, maneuvering, tumble, and spin recovery, which was essential due to the volume of the orbital workstation, and EVAs to Exchange Film Magazine. Okay, let's move on to the medical training. The crew spent 98 hours on medical training. They received practical training in diagnosing of illnesses at an outpatient level. They trained to use the thermometer, stethoscope, figmo manometer, and thalmoscope, as well as to use the microbiology hematology, and urine analysis aspects of the in-flight medical support system. 
Now, the in-flight medical support system was equipped with just about enough supplies for a modest doctor's office. And at the time, it was quite a leap forward. It also contained minor surgical instruments, a laryngoscope, and a tracheotomy kit, intravenous fluids, and many medications, including injectables. Diagnostic equipment was included to make and examine blood smears and to do cultures and antibiotic sensitivity tests on various body fluids. The goal was for the training to be sufficient to support the patient until transport to professional medical care. Of course, Kerwin, being the doctor of the group, was quite familiar with the tools and was very much in favor of carrying the equipment to Skylab. Some of the others, familiar with the medical equipment, primarily from being on the receiving end, were less enthusiastic. Further medical training enabled the crews to cope with sickness, accidents, minor injury, and chemotherapy. Additionally, the crews completed stressed first aid resuscitation and supportive measures training in case of a major injury or illness. The crews also learned to use the incubator for growing microbial cultures. Two crewmen from each flight were taught to use an otoscope and an ophthalmoscope, palpate and precuss, and report their findings to a doctor in mission control. Kerwin was quoted as saying, It was a wild experience for the pilots and a valuable refresher for me. We were even taken to the trauma unit at Ben Taub Hospital in Houston on a Friday night were under the skilled tutelage of Dr. Pedro Rubio, the chief resident, we watched one of the best emergency medicine teams in America deal with life-threatening trauma and illness. End quote. Trauma training at Bentaub Hospital was a memorable experience for the astronauts. It was always scheduled on a Friday or Saturday evening when the probability of a gunshot or knife wound was apparently the highest, and that proved to be the correct time for gunshots or knife wounds. Of course, the crew usually kept their distance from the emergency team engaged in what was a life-or-death procedure for some incoming patients. More relevant to their Skylab situation, they also had personal discussion and training with the experts in ear, nose, and throat, gastrointestinal tract, and eye and other specialties about how to handle in-flight emergencies. Even in those early days, they could expect to have experts in prompt voice contact and even with TV downlink to provide images to the ground. So the crew ended up with reasonable confidence that most emergencies could be handled if they should arise. 
The astronauts were also introduced to a fine team of consultants from the Houston Medical Community Specialist who would be on call during all the Skylab missions to advise the NASA flight surgeons should trouble arise in flight. Doctors Paige Nelson, Hiram Warshaw, Everett Price, Kamal Sheena, and Jules Borga gave freely of their time and talent. Knowing they were there provided the crew with a feeling of security. Kerwin said one of the best things to come out of the in-flight medical support system was the checklist. Stimulated by the need to explain medical equipment and procedures to a bunch of pilots, the medical team leaked up with the training team to produce a fine, very graphic and explicit manual showing with simple line drawings what everything looked like and what to do. The astronauts had one more treat in store during their medical training. Kerwin said, quote, Drunk with enthusiasm by the opportunity to experiment in space, the medical research team pushed for one final capability, to take and return blood samples. Not a big deal, you say, but it was. First, because it had never been done before and second, because it posed some hardware challenges in weightlessness. It was done. The crews agreed to give blood weekly. One member of each crew was trained to be the vampire, and an assortment of air-evacuated tubes, a centrifuge to separate cells from plasma, and arrangements to freeze and return the samples were designed and flown. It all worked quite well. I drew my own blood, not wanting to put Pete or Paul to the trouble of learning and perhaps forgetting how. Pete hated to be stuck on the ground, and he tended to become lightheaded. But the blood could not rush from your head in zero G, so Pete was fine. He just looked away from the needle. End quote. The first crew, by benefit of being first and of having the only medical doctor of the group among its number, bore much of the hard work in planning for crew participation in the medical experiments, with a lot of help from Bill Thornton, also a medical doctor and a Skylab guinea pig himself during simulations. As a result, the training activity for the second and third crews followed much the same protocol as developed for the first flight team. Garriott said, quote, Of course, there were always some personal differences in practice. Whereas the first mission would have a doctor on board who knew the medical objectives and protocol in detail as he had helped devise them plus the fact that some of his other crew members were apparently not too enthusiastic about some of the procedures, particularly blood draws, the second flight team all started substantially at the same level in terms of medical experience. 
Garriott described his crew with respect to the medical procedures as being novices, but with a great interest in the protocol and personal results. Garriott said, quote, No deference was provided to this scientist astronaut in this area. Everyone wanted to know about and participate in all they could. They were all trained to draw blood and planned to do it in flight. They started with practice puncturing the skins of oranges or grapefruit with a hypodermic needle to simulate that of a human arm. Next came human volunteers, usually from life science workers in the MSC laboratories. As it turns out, there were more females than male volunteers, perhaps because they had a tougher constitution or were highly motivated. And this often made the task more difficult, perhaps having less visible and accessible veins to attack. But all three of the crewmen successfully accomplished the blood draws a number of times. Finally, even drawing their fellow crewmen's blood at least once. It was good practice and we actually enjoyed the training. End quote. During all three flights, crew members put their training into practice. Garriott routinely drew the blood of Bean and Lausma while one or the other would draw his blood on the desired schedule every week or so. On one occasion, in the middle of the crew's two-month stay, the ground asked to have a video of the actual procedure. Lausma was scheduled to draw Garriott's blood. Garriott said, quote, We got all the cameras placed properly and the video recorder running, for later dumped to the ground. With all the paraphernalia in place, I bared my left arm, got the tourniquet tight, Jack made an excellent stick, and the blood flowed freely just as desired. When finished, we withdrew the needle and blood promptly squirted all over the place. I have forgotten to remove the tourniquet first, and all the blood pressure trapped in the lower part of the arm took the path of least resistance into space. So we cleaned up the mess I had made, rewound the tape recorder, and did it all over again using my right arm. The physicians on the ground seemed happy with the demonstration. End quote. Close to the same time, the question of dental treatment on Skylab surfaced. The astronaut's dentist, Dr. Bill Fromm, recommended putting a dental kit on board and training two men on each crew to use it. In light of his experience with astronaut patients, he argued that palliative treatment, even up to the point of extracting an obsessed and painful tooth, was preferable to terminating a mission. To get a second opinion, Deke Slayton asked Dr. Kerwin to review Fromm's request. Kerwin responded in a memo to Slayton saying, A 1% chance of a serious dental problem on a 28-day mission is not surprising. 
That is 28 days times three crewmen equals 84 man days, which is 1% of 8,400 man days or 23 man years. If we have 46 astronauts, one of them will need emergency dental care every six months, which matches Dr. Fromm's experience. I have asked Dr. Fromm to set up his proposed five-day training program and run me through it as a guinea pig. I believe that the right thing to do is to let them put the hardware on board, agree to train one of the three crewmen, which cuts the risk but does not eliminate it, and reevaluate after the first mission. In memo. Management instead decided to go ahead and train two members of each crew, and according to Kerwin, they had a great time. The astronauts traveled with Dr. Fromm to San Antonio to the U.S. Air Force Dental Clinic at Brooks Air Force Base. Fromm and the dental staff had recruited a number of volunteers who needed to have a tooth extracted. Kerwin said, quote, One of the first lessons was that you didn't pull teeth, you extracted them. So, there we were, six of us, wielding syringes filled with xylocaine and wicked-looking dental forceps, and we were much more nervous than the patients were. Getting those jaws numb and those molars out under the watchful eye of our dentist instructors. Paul Weitz drew a retired Air Force general. My patient's molar broke in two during the procedure and had to come out in pieces. We were very glad when it was all over, but I believe we could have done the deed in flight had we needed to. We didn't, and no dental emergencies arose during any mission. End quote. Thus, the dental kit became part of the in-flight medical support system. Moving on to other training, each crew completed 450 hours of briefings and reviews with the command and service module, briefing requiring up to 95 hours. The briefing's emphasis was on major subsystems and operations. Of course, all the astronauts had completed Apollo Command Service Module training as part of their general astronaut training upon entering the program. But correct Command Service Module operation was so critical that management insisted their skills needed to be maintained even though they would only spend a short time in the command and service module during the flight. The crews completed a program of six-hour systems briefings, concentrating on system anomalies and late modifications. Orbital assembly briefings accounted for another 12 hours, during which the crews gained a working knowledge of the orbital workshop airlock module, multiple docking adapter, and the Apollo telescope mount. Briefings on the Saturn 1B took 8 hours, and there were 110 hours spent on solar physics. 75 hours were spent on flight plans and checklists, and a further 50 hours were spent on mission rules and techniques. 
Each crew completed 350 hours in systems tests and selected spacecraft and experiments tests were conducted to confirm the operational acceptability of crew stations and crew equipment, which took 150 hours. Command service module tests were repeated by the three crews and the backups, but other component tests were completed just once, although the second and third crew completed 50 hours of spacecraft tests. Spacecraft testing was performed at the primary contractor's plants of North American Rockwell in Downey, California on the command and service module, Martin Marietta Aerospace in Denver for the multiple docking adapter, and McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis for the multiple docking adapter airlock module, and California for the Orbital Workshop and Marshall Space Flight Center for the Apollo Telescope Mount. The crews also periodically inspected stowed equipment aboard the command and service module and the orbital workshop and spent some 60 hours minutely checking flight equipment for function and operational suitability. Additionally, the crews spent a total of 40 hours on fire, decompression, and end-of-mission water recovery training. A further 96 hours were allocated to other significant system training, such as briefings on crew systems, food, waste, extravehicular mobility unit, hygiene, TV, photography, and activation and deactivation of the OSS, and using mock-up trainers. The full mission simulators, part task simulators, experiment task simulators, and various engineering development simulators used for rehearsal and practice by all the crews took up to 695 hours of each crew's training. That is about one-third of total crew training time. The command and service module simulator took 300 hours. This simulator gave the astronauts comprehensive training in all segments of the command and service module operations including countdown, simulations, operations, launch, orbital insertion, assembly, pointing, deorbit, and entry. The simulator could perform independently of or integrated with the Skylab simulator and mission control. 300 hours per crew was spent in the Skylab simulator. This was an integrated Saturn Workshop procedures trainer consisting of a functional Apollo telescope mount, control and display console, structural transition section control and display panel, oxygen and nitrogen control panel, aft compartment panel, lock compartment control panel, and orbital workshop electrical display and caution and warning control panel. 80 hours per crew was spent in the command module procedures simulator to develop crew proficiency in rendezvous and entry procedures, both nominal and contingency. Rendezvous training began with the command and service module orbital insertion and ended with docking at the orbital workstation. 150 hours per crew were spent in the dynamic crew procedures simulator, which gave the crews additional practice in launch, launch abort familiarization, normal launch time, and launch vehicle failure recovery modes. 
Follow-on sessions expanded on this to develop crew proficiency in various abort situations and launch vehicle contingency mode operations. Finally, rescue training varied from 8 to 24 hours. The first crew used 8 hours, the second crew used 16 hours, and the third used 24 hours, involving briefings, reviews, mock-ups, and simulators as part of a nominal mission if rescue was initiated. This was in addition to training for the rescue crew given prior to the flights. The rescue crew and some support crew participated in an interesting rescue scenario with two astronauts flying to Skylab to take back the three crewmen on board Skylab. This would mean five astronauts returning to Earth in the command module. Astronauts Brand and Lynn conducted sea trials in a command module in the Gulf of Mexico. One test was for the seaworthiness of the command module with five men inside floating on the water instead of the normal three. As the command module was buoyant, either upright, stable one condition, or apex down, stable two condition, before the self-riding balloons inflated. The test was also used to confirm correct post-landing activities for five astronauts in the cramped command module. On the rescue mission, Brand occupied the left seat and Lynn the right seat, while both covering the center seat instrument panel's activities, where Lenore would normally have sat. During the return home, the commander of the rescue crew would have occupied the center couch and his two colleagues used couches beneath Brand and Lind. Brand and Lind had trained for this and required a simulated rescue crew to practice the five-person post-landing choreography. Two support crew members took the lower seats while Lenore filled the center couch position. Prior to the test, Lynn mentioned that because they would become disoriented in six-foot waves and flip over several times, they would not know whether they were right side up or upside down, being strapped tight into the seat. Lynn told them when each of them unbuckled, they should grip something to steady themselves from falling until they became aware which way up or down was. The group looked at him with a thank-you-captain-obvious glare. Clearly, they would be able to tell if they were up or down. During the test, as the command module was flipped over again, the command to crewman Lenore to be the first to unstrap was given. As he did so, he fell. What he thought was upwards, but was in reality down into the apex of the Apollo three to four feet away and slammed into the structure. He looked up at Lynn with that don't say a word or I'll hit you look. Lynn really tried not to break into a smile. Of course, the rest of the crew suggested that maybe hanging on was a good idea after all. The total training for the first crew was 2,187 hours. Crew 2 took a more modest 2,154 hours, and Crew 3 took the least time of all at 2,059 hours. 
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 402 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab Training Part 2. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode should be released on or about December 1st. Can you believe it? It's almost December. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 221 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive should be available on most podcatchers. If you're so inclined, my Twitter handle is working again, and its name is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can follow on Facebook if you like. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Space Rocket History. We're, in addition to episodes, I post some extra things occasionally. Had a few afterthoughts. Like to apologize for my many mispronunciations. There was a lot of medical terms in there that I uh, had to look up and do my best with the pronunciation. If you missed the 400th episode celebration live show on YouTube, you can still see the recorded version. Go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the YouTube link, and that should take you directly to our video. The link is on the right side of the page, the third box down. If you are a new listener, I really want to encourage you to check this out because it will probably answer some of the questions you have about the podcast. So go ahead and click the link. I spent a little extra time on the neutral buoyancy simulator at Marshall because it was so impressive and I found it very interesting. And wow, did they ever get their money's worth out of that. This was no ordinary swimming pool. It was actually a tank. 40 feet deep and 75 feet across. Big enough to fit Skylab and all the other equipment in it. You know, we actually got to see it one time on a tour of Marshall. Unfortunately, they decommissioned it in uh, 1997. They didn't just use it for Skylab, though. They also used it for some shuttle training for some missions and uh, the Hubble telescope and even uh, the ISS. Believe it or not, in 1985, it was declared a National Historic Landmark. So that's pretty impressive. I was a little surprised to learn that the Skylab crews trained longer than the crews for the lunar missions. But I guess that makes sense if you really think about it. Now for the news that I have been waiting to tell you for so long. I would like to offer my sincere congratulations to NASA, Boeing, the ESA, and all the other contractors for a successful launch of Artemis. It finally happened. Offer a big shout out to John and Kelvin. Great job. 
That launch was epic, and Artemis is on the way to the moon. And may I just say, it feels great to be back into deep space again at last. Next time, I will have something really special that is not commonly known about the Skylab program. And it even ties back to mole. So, make sure you download episode 403. Moving on, over the past fortnight, we received five donations. And I would like to thank Ike C., from Germany, who donated at the Soyuz level. Matthew F. from Tennessee sent in another donation and moved to the Mars level. Robert N. donated at the Soyuz level and earned a galaxy emoji. Ryan M. from Michigan donated at the Soyuz level and earned a moon emoji. And Scott C. donated at the Gemini level and earned a rocket emoji. Unfortunately, our total Patreon donors has dropped to 242. It's rough when we change months. We lose, uh, I guess, uh, some of it is just credit card expiration. So if you've got a credit card over at Patreon, you might want to check the expiration date. Okay, so, especially for those who have never supported the podcast, if you're enjoying this podcast that has been running now for almost nine and three-quarter years without commercial interruptions, and you can't afford it, don't want to break the budget, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can mail me a check if you'd like. I'll give you my address. All you have to do is email and ask for it. My email is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Niles Rasmussen. Niles Rasmussen, if you'll email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference We'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 361 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, The Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for the episode 402. I'll try to have episode 403 posted on or before December 1st, 2022. Happy Thanksgiving for those who are celebrating, and so long for now.